0: Uh, came up to me, and she said, you better bring it today. She goes, I'm a week behind, and we need to get this baby out. So I ain't never preached a baby in, so we'll just hope that doesn't happen during the service. But uh, we will be praying for you, sister. Um, <laughs> but before we try and do that, um, I do want to take uh, just a moment to, uh, to just point out um, uh, David and, and Grace Verheye. Um, so if you were at the members meeting this past uh, past Sunday night, uh, you, you know that David and, and Grace are going to be going to be moving off and um, out to a, to Warrington, um, Virginia. David is uh, serves as, well, just resigned as uh, one of our elders. He's been here for, for quite a while. Um, and uh, yeah, so about five years ago, if you're new to the church, about five years ago or so, um, if you'd have come here on a Sunday morning, it'd have been in you and about four to eight or nine other people, um, and David and Grace came over from um, from Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and uh, used to sit in the back. And he said that they would they would pray for the church that would be here. And um, yeah, David, uh, Grace, thank thank you guys. Um, we we love you. Grateful for the way that you've uh, served here in many ways behind the scenes for for a while uh, through some through some difficult days, um, and to watch how. God has honored the fruit of your prayerful labor, and uh, we th- we thank you for um, yeah for your love for Christ and love for His church and the way that uh, those of us who are sticking around, which nobody else moved, please uh, everybody else sticking around uh, will get to uh, yeah to be fed by our Lord in this place for hopefully um, many many days to come. So um, thank you and uh, love you. And we're gonna, we will certainly, certainly miss you. Um, I'm gonna pray for us uh, now as we move into um, hearing, hearing God's word. I will briefly pray for the, the Verheijns as they, as they, uh, spending their last Sunday with us. But then we're gonna get into Hebrews chapter eight. So would you, would you pray with me once more, Father in heaven? We thank you for the way that you. As the Lord Jesus promised, uh, build your church. And we thank you for the way that you use just normal people to do that. And that you gift your church in particular ways. And we say thank you for the way that you gifted uh, and have gifted David and, and Grace and brought them here to Delray Baptist Church uh, to walk alongside some some other saints and to pray that you would move. And we thank you for the way that you are Reviving this this work and this gospel witness here, we thank you for the honor that it is to be a part of something like that, and thank you for the honor that it has been to serve alongside them. Uh, for me personally, the, in these years that I have have been here, so Father, we pray for David and Grace, Rachel, Anna, and Ben, and pray that as they they head off, that you would you would give grace to them, bless them, help them to to uh, to be a blessing and. The place where they land, and that you would, um, yeah, just encourage them with the work that you have done through them. Uh, but help them, Lord, not to settle, uh, but to rejoice and to press all the more into what you have for them in the days ahead. And now, Father, as we turn attention to your word, we say thank you that you are a God who does not leave us here to guess what it is that you uh, want us to be doing that we are not uh, left here to try and collect little treasures and uh, hope that they will make us happy and bring us joy and last, uh, but that You have told us that which is most precious and You have shown it to us in Christ. And we pray that as we come to Your Word this morning that You would exalt the Savior in our hearts and that we would see Him for who He is and love Him and that You would give us eyes to see Your Word, hearts to believe Your promises, and ears to hear the things that You say to us by the power of Your Spirit through Your Word this morning. So God, uniquely bless us this day. Might You put a hedge of protection around us. Give, us. give us minds that are focused upon Your Word. Let the evil one have no place here. But God, give us devoted hearts that love You all the more because of what You do in our time together. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Christmas for me growing up was it was an exciting time. Uh, We we weren't we weren't a rich family, but you know we we had we had Christmas morning, and I know everybody's experience of Christmas is is kind of kind of different, but um, we would always get kind of you know like two two or three nice gifts, and it was it was the thing that I had told mom and dad that this is this is kind of what I can't live without. Please, this is what I want, and usually mom and dad would find some way to scrape it together and we would we would get something like that that we really wanted and uh, it would be awesome for like three days and then it would do like that whole you know the, the toy story get dumped off into the closet and forgotten forever kind of thing and uh, I remember when I was moving out from college my mom uh, said there's one last thing you need to do and she took me down into the basement into the the boxes of all of the discarded gifts uh, that I had gotten over the years, and she said, "Figure out what to do with these." <laughs> and um, I just remember thinking about that at that time, and reflecting upon it, sense of how everything in this life that we get, even the even the best of gifts that we receive, eventually they they tarnish and fade. Eventually, they fall into into the forgotten and discarded pile. One of the things that that marks God's great love toward us is that when He gives a gift, it is not something that that tarnishes and fades, but rather it is a lasting, everlasting gift that is worth trading everything else that the world might offer for us to receive. And this morning, what we're going to be considering in Hebrews chapter 8 is that in, in Christ, God has purchased for us a gift that will never tarnish and never fade, but one that, for those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ, we will enjoy forever. That is the blessings of the new covenant. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask that you would turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, where we are going to be considering this morning the blessings of the new covenant. We've been studying in the book of Hebrews for a number of months now, and uh, as you'll see in the... The little pamphlet that was handed out with the schedule, we're going to keep on doing that through, basically through mid-part of the summer, Lord willing, next, next year, continuing to just walk verse by verse through this book. So if you do have your Bible, turn Hebrews 8. If you didn't bring a Bible, as Eric pointed out, there's some provided for you. Page 1004 is real close to where, where we are this morning in those Bibles. Turn there as we study. If you haven't been with us in the book, of Hebrews, basically what is happening is the author here is exalting Jesus before the eyes of this congregation that had heard and professed faith in Christ. And they were being tempted to, to turn away from Christ and to go back to Judaism, to go back to the Old Covenant, back to the prophets, back to the law, back to the, the sacrificial system under the Levitical priesthood, under, back to the Old Covenant. And what the author is doing here, all the way through the book of Hebrews, is he is, he is saying, no. And he's lifting Jesus up and saying, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater than anything the world could ever offer, and certainly anything that the old covenant offers, because Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. He is, chapter 1, greater than the prophets. Chapter 1, he's greater than the angels. Chapter 3, he's greater than Moses. Chapters 4 and 5, he's, he's greater than Aaron. Aaron. Chapters five through seven, he serves in a greater priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood that we looked at last week. Chapter eight, he mediates a greater, better covenant, which we're going to consider this morning. In chapters nine and ten, we'll get into Lord willing in the new year that he is a great, he has a greater ministry in a greater tabernacle in heaven, where he gave up a greater sacrifice of himself, and that he serves as the ultimate object of faith. Chapter eleven. So really, this whole book is, is, is one blinking neon light pointing to Jesus. He is the great treasure that God gives to His, his people. So what I'm going to do is we're going to go ahead and read Hebrews chapter 8, uh, and then we will we'll consider some of the, the wonderful truths that God has given for us in it. You can follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. So everything from chapter 7 about the Melchizedekian priesthood. The point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For He finds fault with them when He says, Behold, the day's... Are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so, I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will... And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Well, praise God for His Word in Hebrews chapter 8. The main idea that we're going to be seeing and thinking about this, this morning is that Jesus purchased God's promises for God's people by His own blood. Jesus purchased God's promises for God's people by His blood. And these promises, we will see, are better than any treasure the world could ever offer. Now, the way we're going to consider this is in in two parts. Uh, The first part is that we're going to consider that that Jesus ministers as a greater priest in a greater tabernacle. Jesus ministers as a greater priest in a greater tabernacle. And then, in verses 7 down through the end, we're going to consider that Jesus mediates a greater covenant with greater promises. Jesus mediates a greater covenant with greater promises. So let's look here at number one. Jesus ministers as a greater priest in a greater tabernacle. Uh, Verse one and, and two again. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, in case you haven't been with us uh, for Hebrews or when we did Leviticus before this, the high priest was one who, under the Mosaic Covenant, would intercede between God and people. He would be the one who would instruct uh, the people with the law, telling them who God was and what God wanted from them. He was the one who would pray for them and intercede for them. And then he is the one who would uh, offer up sacrifices where blood would be shed to atone or cover for the sins of the people. The high priests oversaw all of that. And what Hebrews is doing for us in chapter 4.14 all the way through the end of chapter 10 is saying Jesus is a better high priest than any other high priest who has ever been. He is unlike any other priest who has ever lived. And before he moves into that and we consider that, I think once more, we saw this in chapter 4, but we should not just breeze past those two words that go with this idea of Jesus being our High Priest. That we have Him. We have this High Priest. What that means is that for those who have turned from their sins, who have trusted in Christ, those who are born again by faith in Him, we are His and He is ours. His promises and His ministry must not be Read or heard or conceived as some kind of abstract ministry that's just kind of out there in theoretical, theological talk, but rather, this is personal grace that God gives to His people. Last week, 725 tells us that Jesus, the high priest, ever lives to make intercession for us, we who are His. In Christ, God came near and He dwelt among us. He breathed the air that He gave us to breathe. He drank the water that He gave us to drink. He suffered the pain that that we ushered into the world because of our rebellion against God. He died on the cross under the curse that we deserved. But not only did He do that, but He rose from the dead. And after 40 days, He ascended and He sat down at the right hand ...of the Father in heaven. And we, we should notice that here. It tells us where he's seated. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in, in, in heaven. And though he is way up there, as it were, he is still near to his people. When he ascended, he sat down. This sitting down fulfilled the prophecy that we looked at a little bit last week in Psalm 110. One, where the Lord says to my Lord, so David speaking... The Lord, God the Father, says to my Lord, Jesus the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So after Jesus' resurrection, this, he, he ascended and He assumed His proper place next to the Father in glory. Now for us, that kind of makes sense if you've been around and you've heard preaching for a while. Okay, it makes sense. He went, he went and He sat next to the Father. But, but the reunion that this would have been This is what, now I understand there's a lot of other things that that go into this, but one of the reasons Jesus did not sin when he was on earth, John 17 tells us, is because he couldn't wait to share in the glory with the Father again. He would endure the cross, despise the shame, that he would be with the Father. Certainly he was the Son of God and not capable of sin, but he would not sin. Because there was something better to be with the Father. He wanted to be with Him. I just can't even imagine the reunion when Jesus ascended and came back into glory and all of the angels just go, they lose it. He's home. And He sits next to the Father. Someday we, we might get a glimpse of, of what that means. But He's there and He sits down and He assumes His proper place. And there Jesus is given authority as the eternal King and the eternal priest, fulfilling the promises of that Melchizedekian priesthood that we saw last week. The the right hand is the place of authority. The Father gave Jesus all authority as promised in Daniel chapter 7, and that Jesus spoke about after His resurrection when He said to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Jesus has been given all power and all authority. No high priest can ever say that. Jesus is unique and distinct above them all. He is a greater priest. Now, one might wonder, well, how does he use that power and authority? There's lots of ways he does it. There in Psalm 110, there's a day coming he's going to use it to come back and stomp out all evil. So ISIS may raise its flag for a while, but one day they will all bow a knee to the Lord Jesus when he comes back. That day is, is coming. But one of the other ways He uses His power and His authority is something that each of us who are in Christ right now, whether we know it or not, are partaking of. He is preserving His people. Right now, Jesus is using the power and the authority that He has at the right hand of the Father to finish the good work that God began in us when He called us to Himself. He is carrying us home. Hear this from John 10. Jesus said, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. Right now, Jesus has His, his high priestly hand upon you if you are in Christ. And He is preserving you and keeping you as a good shepherd, bringing you all the way home. That's what he's doing right now if you are his. It's also important to note here what's Jesus' posture. It says that he is seated. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And this understanding, talking about him being seated in the context of the high priest, is, is unique. Because when you read through exodus you read through leviticus you read through the giving of the law and the explanation of building the tabernacle building the temple what piece of furniture is never found in the temple or tabernacle ain't no lazy boy there's no there's no chair there's no bean bags there the reason is because the high priest's work was never done never done morning and evening sacrifices Feasts and festivals. All day long sacrifices. The priest was always on his feet ministering, ministering, ministering because all of those sacrifices were just a mere shadow. They couldn't fix the problem. Last, last week in chapter 7 we saw they couldn't perfect the, the worshiper. But Jesus' ministry is different. Hebrews 10, which we'll get to in, in a few weeks, says this, 10-12, says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus offered a single sacrifice for sins, and as He did, He cried out, It is finished! It's done! It's done! And then He sat down. Redemption accomplished. His ministry is greater than any other high priest. has ever come. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now he goes on here in verse 3 through 6 to describe it a little more. He says, "For, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest, Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Jesus couldn't be a priest on earth. Since there are priests, there on earth, are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So Jesus, just like every other high priest, had to have something to offer. But Jesus was not qualified to be a Levitical priest. He he wasn't. He would not have been allowed to be an earthly Levitical priest. Why? Because his offering was different. He didn't offer gifts according to the law. You see, as high priest, Jesus wouldn't offer the blood of bulls or goats or pigeons. Why? Because his offering was infinitely and eternally better. He gave himself. Jesus couldn't serve as an earthly high priest because, not because he was too lowly, but because he was too glorious. He'd he blow that thing right out of the water. He couldn't, he couldn't serve in that capacity. Jesus never entered into the earthly tabernacle and the holy of holies there. Why? Because that's not where he was ministering. His ministry was higher. It was better in a greater tabernacle. Here in verse 5, it says that the old tabernacle, they, served, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And then he gives this account in verse 6 from, about Moses. He says, For when Moses was about to set up the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, that's a really interesting deal. Because when you read through Exodus 24 through 31, you get this scene where God is talking to Moses. He's given the law there. And uh, there's just one scene that is always... You ever have those, those places in the Bible where you're like, oh, I wish I could see that? Well, there's one of those for me. There's a lot of those, but there's, there's one of those for me in this, this giving of the law where, where G- Moses is there, he's there with Aaron, he's there with a few other guys, and the Lord does this thing where it's like he lifts up this veil between the world that we know and, and the world that we have not seen yet. And, and he shows Moses what's in there, and it says that, that below the throne of God, there's this, this pavement made of clear sapphire, just radiating. Like, I don't know what that looks like, but you just want a little glimpse of that. Like, what's, what's that? It's that same sapphire picture that you see in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10, when the, the chariot of God comes. It says underneath of it, there's this sapphire road that paves the way before his throne. So while Moses is up there and he's getting this, all these instructions about how to build the tabernacle, it's like God says, Moses, take a look at this. This is my throne. This is where I dwell. And I want you to make the tabernacle down there, I want you to make it look like that. You know? And that's why Moses, sometimes he'll come down from the mountain, just his face is just radiating with glory. And the people are like, put on a veil. Because they can't look at him. Because he has encountered heaven. It's just a a shadow here. It's Hebrews 9.24, copies of the true things. This tabernacle, this, this holy of holies, even the most holy place on the face of the earth, it's mere, it's Legos, is what it is. It's Etch-A-Sketch compared to what's going on in glory. And Moses does the best with all that. I mean, they, that thing's decked out with every, all the best stuff you can get. But, like, it's nothing compared to what is. Verse ten or Chapter 10, verse 1 says, It's but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And the, the whole Old Testament serves in that way. The law, the temple, The the, the priesthood, the sacrifices, they are all shadows. They are dim pictures of which Christ fulfills them. Colossians 2.17 says it this way. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And that's what the author is showing us here. Jesus, He's a greater high priest who serves in a greater tabernacle. He's in glory. Don't go back to this this earthly tent don't go back to some temple in the ground is going to get get lit up by the romans in 70 a.d don't don't go back to this frail system which was intended to be a mere pointer a tutor showing you the substance who's christ don't go back to that god has given something better there's a better high priest who serves in a better tabernacle He is the greater high priest who offers a greater sacrifice and now sits down as the final high priest of heaven. Not a tabernacle in the wilderness or a temple in a city. His ministry is better. And that's what he says summarizing there in verse 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. So in this first section, what we see here is that Jesus ministers as a greater priest in a greater tabernacle. And we're going to learn a lot more about this tabernacle and his, his ministry and how his sacrifice uh, served us in chapters 9 and 10. We're going to get a lot of sweet stuff there. But he moves his attention now to helping us think about the fact that Jesus mediates a greater covenant that comes with greater promises. Everything that we're going to experience, all of the goodness of God, is going to come because of this promise, this covenant that he has made with his people. So that's our our second point that we're moving into now, that Jesus mediates a greater covenant with greater promises. Look again at verse 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent as... Then the old covenant, then, I'm sorry, then the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. Since, this is why it's better, it is enacted on better promises. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah. So he mentions both the house of Israel and the house of, of Judah. The kingdom had split. All of Israel, all of God's people are going to enjoy this. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the, the land of Egypt. So again, we have that Exodus generation in mind here. For they did not continue in my covenant, and, I, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, as he starts all this talk about covenant, we should probably ask, well, what, what's a covenant? Right? So a, a covenant, very simply, is it's when, in, in the scriptures, it's a promise that God makes to his people so they understand how their relationship's going to go. God makes a promise to his people telling them how he's going to act and how they should respond. God makes several covenants throughout the Bible. They, they kind of guide everything that's going on made a covenant with Adam that he would send a seed of woman who would come and crush the serpent's head. That's the promise of Messiah. made a covenant with Noah that um, he would hang his bow in the sky. So every time you see a rainbow, what we're supposed to think is that God has, has hung his, his weapon of war in the sky. And rather than getting wrath, which we deserve, God is giving mercy and will not flood the world with uh, water again. That's what you're supposed to see every time you see a rainbow. The Abrahamic covenant, God promises that through Abraham all the nations will be blessed and they'll have land, seed, and and blessing. God makes a promise with David that he'll have a throne, a house, and a kingdom that through one of his descendants there will be a forever king who will forever reign over God's people. And then, in the prophet Jeremiah, God makes a promise of a new covenant. One that fulfills all of the others. Everything else that God has promised falls into this new covenant. And this is how God is going to deal with his people. So very simply again, what's a covenant? It's a promise of how God will relate with his people. Now what's a mediator? It says here he's a mediator of a better covenant. So a mediator is simply one who oversees the covenant. Normally who stands between two parties and ensures that everything is done as it's supposed to to be. So Jesus is serving that role. Now when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he made a covenant with them. So this is the covenant that's after the Abrahamic covenant. God had promised Abraham, I'm going to give you land. And now he brings Israel out of Egypt and he says, here's how you're going to enjoy the land. I'm going to give you my law and you're going to obey. And if you obey, you'll be blessed. But if you disobey, you're going to be cursed and you're going to be kicked out of the land where you will not have my provision, my protection, and my presence. Now, we may wonder, well, what's so, what's so bad about the Mosaic Covenant? What what was wrong with it? Because in verse 7 it says, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. God makes a new covenant. He says, I'm going to make a new one with you. And he says the reason is because there was some fault with the first covenant. So what was wrong with the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant? You may hear it referred to like that. What was its fault? Well, some would suggest that the, the fault with the Old Covenant was that it was, it was limited in its intent because it was only a shadow. That's certainly true. It was, it was faulty in that sense, in that it was limited. It was never intended to be the final answer. That's true. It's also limited in its ability, meaning it, it, gave, it gave no strength or power to obey. The law, simply as Eric put it well, sits outside you and tells you what you're supposed to do, but gives you no strength to do it. And basically just ends up condemning you for all the way that we never keep it. So it's limited in in that sense, that's true. Chapter 7 even tells us it couldn't provide perfection, right? But in the end, there's a bigger problem with the Old Covenant. And he tells us right there in verse 8. Do you see what it is? What's the problem with the old covenant? There in in verse 8. It's in that very first line. Yeah. He finds fault with them. You see, the problem with the first covenant wasn't the covenant covenant giver or even the covenant itself. The problem was the covenant breakers. The problem was that people didn't do what God told them to do. God gave his word, and people said, I don't want you ruling over me. I don't want to wait for your timetable for provision. I don't want, and you can just fill in the blank of everything that all of us have done in our our lives, of the ways we have rejected his rule over us. He finds fault with them, with the Israelites. The fault with the first covenant was with the people God brought out of Egypt because they disobeyed his law. How so? What do they do? Well, verse 9 says they did not continue. They didn't press on. The people, they, they started well. They had big promises. Moses received the law. But do you remember what was happening? Moses is on the mountain getting the covenant from God and what's going on? While he's getting the covenant, like, right, I mean, blazing glory on the mountain, Moses is up there and they say, where's he been what's he doing he must have he's he's gone so we need another god it's like the covenant doesn't even come out of god's mouth onto the stones before they're already trading god in for another god with the golden calf incident there in in exodus he comes moses comes down from mount sinai to find them dancing around this golden idol. And you remember what Moses does with the tablets? He comes down the mountain. He just got like fresh off the press. Comes down, and he sees them all dance around this idol, and he just throws it down and breaks it. Already it's broken. Already we're done. Like he just got it. Already the problem was with them. They were straying and going after other gods already. He finds fault with them. So what's the remedy now? We've already got a broken covenant, and we're not even like three seconds into this deal. What what do we do? What's the remedy for this faulty problem? Well, he's going to let them chew on that for a while. And they're going, to, they're going to have times where they do obey and there is blessing. And there's going to be times where they disobey and there is some serious, serious whooping. I mean, they get, they get through the, the wilderness 40 years there. You get exiled to Syria, Babylon. There's a lot of hardship that comes because of, of them disobeying God's law. But eventually, during their exile, under the prophet Jeremiah, God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to fix this problem. By making a new covenant with you. I'm going to make a new covenant that is not like the old that I made with their fathers when I took them out by the hand. So he's going to make a new covenant that's not like the old. And what we're going to find here is that there's going to be similarity between the old covenant and the new covenant and dissimilarity. So continuity and discontinuity. There's going to be some stuff that's the same and there's going to be some stuff that's not the same at all. And we'll, we're going we're to take a look and consider some of that. Now, as we think about the differences, we're going to think about two primary differences with the new covenant and the old covenant. Now, pause. If you're a Christian, this means you are under the new covenant. When Jesus came, he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them, which he did. He died on the cross to receive the judgment for all of the ways that we have broken the old covenant. And now, at, that, at the Last Supper, he says, This is the new covenant in my blood. Through the shedding of his blood, a new covenant is given. And those who are in Christ are now dealt with under the new covenant. This is why we're not under the law anymore. We're under the new covenant. God does not deal with us as he dealt with them, but he deals with us differently now. Not as children, but as sons and daughters in Christ. So everything that you're about to hear right here, this, this is the... This is the gift, as it were, that the Father gives to his children in Christ. This is the gift that you unwrap through conversion, and you behold, and that you forever enjoy. Is this sweet gift that the Father gives to his children. To help us understand it, two primary differences that center around better promises. The first one is this. And it's, it's not explicit here in the text, but it's really basically everything that we've been learning so far in Hebrews. Number one is this. Enjoyment of new covenant blessings are dependent on Jesus, not on us. Enjoyment of new covenant blessings are dependent on Jesus' faithfulness, not on our faithfulness. Did you get that? One more time. Enjoyment of new covenant blessings are dependent on Jesus, not on us. So the first covenant failed because... The people failed. The first covenant failed because the people failed. But under this covenant, the Lord says, My promises and you enjoying them no longer rest upon your faithfulness, but rest on my faithfulness. It's like God says, I'm going to do this thing for you. The first covenant was, was useless because of our weaknesses. But in Christ, we have a sinless Savior now who intercedes for us. We are now under this this covenant, and though we're still filled with faults, this covenant is better because it's not hindered by our failures. Rather rather than us be struck for our sins, the Father struck the Son in our place. Hear afresh these words of the prophet Isaiah. This is from chapter 53. Speaking of Jesus, 700 years before He even came. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds we are healed. That's new covenant fulfillment. Under the new covenant, my sins do not break the covenant because Christ was already broken for them. He is the mediator of a better covenant. Can you hear the the stability in this new covenant? Can Can you feel how that rings assurance for God's people? So as the accuser pounds with his accusations, we remember, we remember that Christ was afflicted. He was pierced for us. When Satan comes and brings accusations against you, you can't say, oh, whoa, 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 wait, you've got it wrong. I'm actually not that bad. None of us can do that. But rather, what we say is, He is my righteousness. Christ is the one who kept it. He was faithful, though I'm faithless. There's no fault in Him. He's the, one. He's the covenant keeper. The stability of our new covenant enjoyment is not rooted in our performance, but in Christ's perfection. That's good news. There is security for those who are in Christ because it ain't up to us. Jesus paid it all. Write a song about that. Like, that's, that's true. That is a song in case you're visiting, okay? We can abide in and enjoy the new covenant, not because we have or will keep it well, but because Jesus did it for us. John Bunyan, in an excellent little book about the intercession of Christ, he says it this way. The covenant stands good to us as long as Christ stands good to God. Do you hear that? I'll say it again. The covenant stands good to us as long as Christ stands good to God. You're in good with God if you are in Christ. Because Christ forever lives to intercede on our behalf. That's good news. Now, the second, um, second way... Second difference. So the first difference is that the enjoyment of new covenant blessings are dependent on Jesus, not on us. On his faithfulness, not on ours. The the second way that the old covenant and the new covenant are different that we get to enjoy is that the extent of the new covenant promises are better than the old covenant promises. The extent of the new covenant promises are better than the promises of the old covenant. Listen to this again from chapter 8 here, verses 10 through 12, where he quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which, Bible trivia time. This is the longest Old Testament citation in the New Testament. It's the longest place that an Old Testament passage is quoted. It's right here. Now, before you start thinking, is that really true? It's not that long. You start look, I looked around, okay? It's, it's the longest, okay? And how, how interesting is that? That the one big chunk from the Old Testament is about, it's going to be new. We're going to make something new in Christ. That's where it's all fulfilled. So follow along, and let's see these better promises. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. He says here in verse 10, After those days, you see that, I'll make this covenant after those days after those days after all those days that the prophets and the law have served their purpose and you remember how hebrews chapter one began remember chapter one how it began look back there long ago at many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. After those days, well, those days have come in Christ. He's it. He's the final word from heaven bringing in the final covenant. I'm not sure if you picked it up there, but five times you see this phrase, I will. I will. I will. Five times. Everything here is initiated and sustained by God's grace. He's doing this. I will do this for you. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to consider three promises here that he lays out. So the extent of the new covenant promises are better than the old. The first one is this. God promises now to relate to his people in a more intimate way. God promises now to relate with his people in a more intimate way. Look again at verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their minds hearts. This is a much-needed gift of God's grace. Because naturally, sin is engraved on our hearts and our minds that leads us to rebel. That was evident with uh, the Israelites. As soon as, I mean, the law's fallen out of God's lips, and they're already turning away to an idol. Same thing with with kids. You ever been around a new kid? You don't have to teach them to sin. Like, they just come pre-programmed that way. Okay? It's like that. It's written on our hearts. We're under the curse from day one. But here he promises something better. God says he will engrave his truths not on external stones so that we can see, but on formerly stony hearts that he now makes alive. He's going to take out a stony heart and give a new heart that's going to beat with the truth of God. Hear this from Ezekiel 36, another place that the new covenant is spoken of in the prophets. Ezekiel 36, 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, God does not just desire, he, he does desire obedience, but he wants obedience not just to external religious rituals, but he wants obedience from the heart, and if that's going to happen, God's going to do something, because our hearts are naturally in a bad way, so he's going to take it out, and he's said I'm going to give you a new heart, and it's going to have my word inscribed on it. So now, now we love God from the heart through regeneration God brings us into the new covenant where his spirit dwells in us dwells in us and writes on our hearts his will and his word that's why sometimes during a sermon or sometimes when you're reading the bible your heart will just kind of be like yes like that's that's true the reason that happens is because if you're a christian God's Spirit has taken out your old heart and has given you a new heart that has His Word all over it because the Spirit is sealed upon you until the day of redemption. And He has written His Word on your heart so that when you hear that Word, which was given through prophets by that same Holy Spirit, come out, your heart goes, yes, that's true. That's what's happening. That's why some of my more verbal people here say amen sometimes, which we appreciate. That lets me know you're alive. But it's, it's tr- that's what's happening in you. Amen? So, there you go. Right. So, but that's, that's what happens, okay? That's what happens sometimes when you're reading the Bible. Not every time. Yes, we wish it was every time. But, that's, but that happens sometimes. Where our hearts are warmed toward a passage. or we hear of God's grace and it melts us. It's because what's in our heart now is God himself, through his spirit, giving his word. That's why when you become a Christian... It's really weird for you at first because your whole life before, at least if you were like me, your whole life before was about trying to find ways to sin. And now everything in you is about trying to not do that. Like that was when I knew I got born again. I was in college. It was 1999. I was into every kind of crazy thing you can imagine, the whole rave scene. I had, it, was just, it, was a, it was a different world, okay? And my whole life, all the time, was about how do I find some way to find more drink or more drugs or more relationships or whatever it was. And I remember when I got, I got saved and all of a sudden, everything started changing. And the poor girl I was dating at the time, she's like, what happened to you? Because everything in me was now oriented away from what it used to be. I certainly was not perfect, but when I would sin, it would, it would grieve me my heart would say, no, no. And the reason is because the spirit that was in me is trying to conform me to the image of Christ and sin says, I'm going away from being like Christ. That's why sin bothers you if you're a Christian. That's why if you say you're a Christian and you just can go on doing whatever you want and there's no life change, I would say that is a serious sign of concern. Because what God does through conversion is he gives you a heart that loves him that loves what he loves and hates what he hates. And that grows, and there are times where it's more clear than others, but that's the mark of the new covenant, that God dwells and deals with his people in a more permanent way now. His word is on our hearts. Second thing here, is that God relates to His people in a more permanent way. So He related with them in a more intimate way, but He also deals with His people. He relates with us who are in Christ in a more permanent way. Look at verse 10. I will be their God, and they shall be My people. Now, in one sense, this was the aim of the Mosaic Covenant. God gave His law so that they could know Him and they could have Him dwell with them in in their midst. But... This promise of his presence is part of a more permanent plan. God is reconciling his people with himself, and that's always been his desire. You remember Genesis 1 and 2? God created the world, it was perfect. God and man dwelt perfectly, perfect relationship of love, walked together in the cool of the day. But then sin breaks that. And now we're not reconciled. Now we're not right with God. We're we're broken. There's, There's conflict. There's disunity now. We are separated from him. And the whole Bible is about how will God dwell with man again? How, how, how will God fix this? How will God and man tabernacle together again? Well, there's a whole bunch of promises in the Old Testament that lead up to John 1, 14, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. Jesus came among us to live like we wouldn't live, to die like we should have died, And then rose like we could never rise. And now he ascends to the right hand of the Father and promises that if anybody will turn from their sins, they can be brought into that relationship with God where we are now reconciled with him. And we have the promise of one day being with him again. Face to face. Now who's this promise for? Well, it says here that they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That means all of God's people will know him equally hear this. I'm not sure what your background is, but there is no caste system in Christ's kingdom. There is none. Rather, there are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In the kingdom of God, there are Republicans and Democrats and independents. There are blacks and whites and Asians and Hispanics and Indians. There are men and women. There are elderly and adolescent. There are rich and and poor there are privileged and oppressed there are famous and there are forgotten and we could go on all day long the aim of God's mercy to us in Christ is that we might know him in an unhindered permanent way and that's where the whole Bible is leading back to that God through Christ is reconciling the world to himself for those who are in Christ We take that by faith now. There's an already not yet. We already know this reconciliation. But let me just read from the end of the book that we might hear what that's going to be like when we see him. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Through the new covenant, God's people are sealed until the day of redemption when we get to enjoy that. When all the tears of the pains of sin are wiped away and we are with Him in a permanent way forever. It's the promise of the new covenant. Now it does mention here that they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his neighbor saying know the Lord for they shall all know me. This is simply a statement that there is a day coming when the true covenant community will all know the Lord. That day is, is coming. The third and the final way that the promises are better, these better promises, is that God forgives our sins forever in Christ. God forgives our sins forever in Christ. Look at verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Forgiveness is forever for those who are in Christ. In chapters 9 and 10, they're going to show how the sacrifice of His blood covers all of our sins, but here we just need to consider for a moment the sweetness of this promise. There is mercy toward our iniquities and forgiveness forever. I don't know about you, but there are some days that all I can do is remember my sin. That all I can do is consider all of the ways why I'm, I'm not worthy to be called a child of God. We who love God are haunted like this at times. Haunted by the scars that we have gained from following our wandering heart. The ways that we followed sin and grieved the Lord. We hear God's word and sometimes it stands against us and seems to condemn us. But this promise reminds us, in Christ, he gives mercy. We remember the ways our mouths that were created to speak truth about God and give grace to others have slandered people. Or have withheld truth about God because of our fear of other people. Or maybe the way we spoke harshly about somebody or withheld kind words because of jealousy for somebody else. Maybe we remember the ways that our eyes were created to, to read His Word and look upon all that He made and, and to give Him glory. The way that they wander to impure things. The way that they look upon things that we don't have and, and grow covetous in our heart wishing that our life was like somebody else's. We remember that. We remember how our hearts and our minds that were given to meditate upon the, the goodness of God and be warmed to trust and to love Him are often consumed with daydreams about I wish it was like this or I wish I was back then sinning this way. But the promise here is that God, God doesn't do that with our sins. God doesn't remember our sins in Christ. Isaiah forty three twenty five says, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my sake and I will remember your sins no more. Do you hear that? For my sake, for God's glory, so that on that day when we are with Him, all we will be able to do is say, it is because of Your mercy that I am here. It is because of Your grace and Your goodness that You blotted out my transgressions through the blood of Your Son. That's what what will happen on that that day. Isaiah chapter 1 says, Though your sins are as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. It means if you've come here this morning and you're not a Christian and you know yourself to not to be one and you are, you are awakened by God's grace to see your sin and the way that you have rebelled, know this, that in Christ there is plentiful redemption. That His blood, no matter where you've been or what you've done, He can wash away all of it. And He delights in doing that. Psalm 32.2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That promise is purchased For us, with the blood of Christ, when all we can do is remember our sins, God counters with the promise of forever forgetfulness. That the blood of Christ ran down the cross and down Calvary and swept our sins out into the sea of God's forgetfulness. Forever gone. He is merciful. And if you are in Christ, He does not treat you as your sins deserve. We heard earlier, 103.10, the book of from Psalms. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Now you may, you may be wondering, well, how does a God who knows all things forget about my many evils? Does he he not know about them? What this means is that God chooses to not remember them in the sense that he chooses not to remember them against us. God knows everything that's ever happened and everything that ever will happen and everything that could happen. But in Christ, our sins, there is a stamp upon it that says, paid in full. And because of that, he doesn't remember them anymore paid for. That's why no longer hangs over our head condemnation, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hezekiah said it this way, Isaiah 38, 17, great verse. In love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. It's like the Lord says, all that that you're concerned with, all that that separated you, it's gone. And it's upon the cross, paid in Brothers and sisters, under the new covenant, God does not deal with us according to our sins, but he deals with us according to Christ. Our covenant with him is secure forever because it has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. In him, we are forever secure, which frees us to press on toward our heavenly home without the burden of guilt. He calls us to lay it down at the foot of the cross and to run home. May God give us grace as we run and help one another to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to meditate upon you and your promises, that you are a good God who makes good promises, that you pay for them in full, the blood of your Son, and now you call us to come and to freely partake. Father, we pray for those who are among us this morning who do not know you. We pray that you would open their eyes to turn and to believe upon this wonderful, merciful Savior. And we pray for those of us who do, that as we, many of us, receive gifts over these next few days, that we would receive them with thankful hearts, but that we would, above all, not be deceived, but that we would remember that in Christ we have the greatest treasure, and that we would give Him praise for purchasing it with His own blood. Help us to behold the One who is love, who came and showed us love. In his name.